Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Dara Horn about her new book, People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Dara is the author of five novels and was named one of Granta Magazine's Best Young Novelists. This is her first work of nonfiction. Dara holds a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard University and has taught Jewish literature at Harvard, Sarah Lawrence College, and Yeshiva University. Dara, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me. So I always like to start our conversations with a little bio. So can you tell us about yourself? Sure. So I'm I'm actually a novelist. This is my first nonfiction book. I've published uh, five novels, all of which have been uh, about Jewish history and, and uh, tradition and contemporary life. Um, I also have a doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. So yeah, stories about Jews are kind of my thing. Um, but what happens when you are um, write about these topics is that I spent my whole career kind of avoiding the subject that I write about in this book. Um, it was always very important to me to sort of be writing about and teaching about Jewish history and culture, like as an autonomous thing. Um, as opposed to something that was sort of defined by like what the world did to the Jews. And I was always pushing back against that. So I spent 20 years not writing this book, um, you know, in a very active way, like writing a lot of other books that weren't this book um, in, in really every possible way. So, um, you know, I basically kind of caved at some point and wrote this book and I could tell you about why, but um, that's, I, I really am coming to this from a position of, you know, really being a scholar and a uh, creator in um in Jewish culture. We'll get to why in a minute, but I'd like to talk before we delve into the chapters of the book, the introduction. In the introduction, you write that when you were a child, you had a question that burned within you, and that was about the nature of time and where did it go? And you say you started writing as a child with a driving force to stop time, the urge to stop time, to preserve those disappearing days. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's a very interesting introduction to a book about Jewish characters. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, writer, you know, being a writer, it's not really like a career choice. It's almost more like a chronic illness, right? It's like something you discover about yourself when you're, you're six years old. It's like, you know, suddenly you find out you have asthma or diabetes and you have to sort of build your life around that. So um, you know, I always was writing, but for me, writing was about, as I said in that passage, this this urge to stop time. Um, you know, from when I was a child, I sort of was uh, disturbed by this idea that we sort of live in this constant present and that there's this past that we have no access to, right? Like, as I expressed it in the book, when I was a child, I'd get into bed at the end of the day and I thought, this day that just happened is gone now. Where did it go? And I later sort of came to understand that this has something to do with um, my life in America, because I think in American culture, we sort of have this relentless focus on the present, right? We have this idea that, you know, there's this like linear idea of that, you know, history moves in this line of progress. Um, you know, there's, we even have this mythology in the United States that's like, you know, that it shouldn't matter, like where you come from or where your parents are from, like that what matters is what you do with the opportunities this country gives you. Like, that's what we call the American dream, whether or not it's true. Like, this is sort of like the founding legend of this culture is based in this eternal present. 
And I just sort of, you know, since I was a child was sort of pushing back against that. I always felt this sort of sense of loss. And I think it, it came from this idea that the, the sort of this culture I live in was giving me that there's only the present matters. And what I found in Judaism as a child, even, um, although I wouldn't have been able to articulate it, was exactly the opposite idea, right? It was this idea that there was this sort of, um, you know, in Judaism, you have exactly the opposite founding legend. It's that like, you know, we all were, you know, standing at Sinai with the Israelites, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, every person views themselves as if they came out of Egypt, right? There's this idea of time as being not really linear at all, but sort of like the past is always present. And so I sort of had these two conflicting elements of my identity that really made me into a writer, because I think being a writer comes from sort of recognizing some kind of tension um, between, you know, either who you are or who you'd like to be, or the world you're in versus the world you are supposed to be in. Um, and it was that tension that sort of was really clear to me. And that's what I mean by, and, and that's what I mean by sort of this interest in time. Um, you know, to me, writing was like a technology to preserve disappearing days. And, you know, I did find echoes of that in Jewish tradition, which had a very different attitude toward time than the one in America that I was, you know, in the American culture I was living in. Yeah, you write that in Judaism, rather than being linear, it's more like a spiral of a spiral in which the future was the present, which was essentially the past. And it's an important concept, um, because as we'll talk about later on, this is very different in Jewish literature than in normal American Christian um, literature. This present is past, and we're all um, like archaeological mounds. We all have within us the vanished days of, of the past, yeah? Yes, I mean, I think that that's true for everyone, but you know, not everyone is as aware of it, right? So, I mean, what, as um, as I say in the book, I mean, sort of like we all are made. We, all people have these like sort of hidden pasts within them, whether or not they know it, right? I mean, that's biologically true. Like genetically, we're all made out of dead people, right? Like every one of your genes is passed down to you by some genetic ancestor. But it's not just that; it's also you know, we all have this sort of most emo emotional um, legacy from people who came before us. Like if you think about something that, you know, if some kind of something important to you in your life, whether it's a, a passion or a career or an interest, um, you know, there probably was someone in your life who kind of turned you on to that interest. Um, you know, so whether that was a, a parent or a teacher or a friend or someone who was important in your life kind of gave you that excitement and interest in that subject. If you think back in time, there was someone in that person's life who gave them that passion or interest or, or excitement in, in some subject. And, there was someone before that person. And so it's not just like a, you know, it's sort of just a genetic or a legacy or something like that. It's like an emotional legacy that we all sort of carry with us, within us, the influences of the people who came before us. And it's very contrary to the sort of mythology we have in America, where it's sort of like, you know, you're supposed to be this like self-made person without a past. And to me, that contrast was sort of just really, just really interesting. And I think, you know, every person has these layers within them. They just, you know, it's just a question of sort of how conscious you are of them. You say that this is, in essence, the heart of your Jewish identity, this notion, a memory of a past present in you, and that it is an important part of your identity. But you say that to non-Jews, in your view, to non-Jews, being Jewish was a state of not being Christian, not being Muslim. Can you talk about this, your view that 
non-Jews view Jews very differently than Jews view Jews. Yes. Well, I mean, look, and I don't think it's like a binary thing where there's like Jews feel this way and non-Jews feel that way. I think there's sort of like a spectrum of how, you know, how distant or close you are to, you know, uh, living Jewish life, right? I mean, there are people who are, who may be Jewish, but, you know, maybe not have much education in this, um, you know, and then their education about this is not that different from people who aren't Jewish. Um, you know, but I think that, yeah, there's sort of, for me, the meaning in this came from this sort of like historical consciousness. That was what was important to me. There are other people for whom other aspects of this tradition are more important or less important. Um, but yeah, sort of what I realized though, is that like, when you see the way that Jews are portrayed in a wider world, it is really about, um, it's, a, as I say, a state of non-being. It's like, what makes you Jewish is that you're not Christian or you're not Muslim or you're not whatever anybody else is. I mean, I think I said in the book, I think in Britain, more people identify as Jedis than as Jews. Um, it's sort of like whatever you aren't, it's like Jews are just kind of described as like the other, right? And then they become like this metaphor for like, you know, the, you know, the other in the society. And you see that sort of played out in, in benign and not so benign ways throughout history. Um, and there's, but what you don't see is any interest in exploring like the actual content of this, this tradition. Like that is like not, in, not of interest at all. And where I really dive into this in the book is how that, that ex is expressed in things like public Holocaust memory, in the way we talk about um, anti-Semitic attacks, in the way we think about um, you know, what the travel industry calls Jewish heritage sites, um, the way Jews are portrayed in popular culture. It's basically all just sort of like this, just like this negative image of like, these are people who are not whatever, whatever anybody else is. And there's no interest in like what the content of that is. Yeah, you write that you were mistaken that the enormous public interest in past Jewish suffering was a sign of respect for living Jews. You said, I was very wrong. I came to realize the mania for dead Jews was something deeply perverse. Can you yes. flesh that out for us? Yeah, well, so there's a, a lot of directions I could go. Um, so there is, when I say there's something perverse about this, is that what I realized is that dead Jews are being used as a metaphor. And it's sort of like they're they're just a symbol. And it's not about these actual people. It's not about the actual content of the civilization. It's about using them as a metaphor. And basically what it comes down to is people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And often those stories involve Jews having to, e living Jews having to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. So I can, uh, I don't know how deep we want to go into this at this point, but I can sort of, sort of dive in and tell you about sort of how I came to this conclusion and sort of the various instances that, that led me to, to realize how perverse and pervasive this really was. Well, we'll talk about the various chapters in the book, but it would be helpful because you say that uh, you decided to write this book to lean into this, right? to unravel, document, describe, articulate the endless spoken ways in which popular obsession with dead Jews is profound affront to human dignity. So maybe we could start with that broad concept of how this is a affront to human dignity, and then we'll move forward into the chapters of the book. Sure. So, I mean, what I mean by that is what I, you know, I mean, and we'll, I'm sure get into more detail about this, but I started, you know, I, I, as I said at the beginning, I was, I've been avoiding sort of writing about 
um, you know, dead Jews for most of my career. Um, and which has been very difficult because that's kind of the only thing that my, my editors at, and mainstream publications want me to write about. Um, it's like every time I was contacted by an editor at some, you know, at mainstream newspapers and magazines, it's like what they want me to write about is dead Jews. Um, whether it's like Holocaust memorials or anti-Semitic attacks or something like that. And it's like, there's zero interest in the content of the civilization. And it's sort of, and what I say that I was mistaken about this is, you know, I grew up, I'm 44 years old. So, you know, when I was a teenager was when they, you know, built the Holocaust Museum in Washington. There were all these like Holocaust movies and this sort of thing. It started, you know, teaching about the Holocaust became like a, um, a standard part of like public school curriculum in a lot of places in the United States. And it sort of seemed like the, like this was a wonderful thing because, you know, this was like, yay, this is like, you know, this broad acceptance of this like Jewish history, you know, as part of world history and as something that, you know, people find valuable. But, you know, it took a long time for me to appreciate that, like, that's not what was going on here. Like what was going on here was actually a kind of additional erasure of Jewish civilization that was in a lot of it, it was it didn't start out this way, but I think has become a kind of a way of people enabling themselves to not engage with living Jews. Um, and I think you see this even just sort of think about like we have this public ritual now, and this is something I don't talk about in the book because um, you know it's it's happened more recently. Um, we have this public ritual now that like whenever there's some public figure who says something you know like vaguely anti-Semitic. Um, we what do we do we bring them to the holocaust museum right there's like it's really is like a ritual and then this person then like you know then says like oh they feel so sorry and this is so sad that ritual doesn't make any sense because it does not require that person to engage in any way with living jews it's not hard to say that the holocaust was bad right like you know we all like and that's the when i say that there's sort of this you know mania for you know for dead Jews and that it's people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. I came to realize that sort of this like focus on something like Holocaust memorialization, that's something that makes people feel better about themselves because you go to this, you know, you go to these museums or see a film or something like that. And maybe you feel bad about what happened, but I mean, I hope you feel bad about what happened, but you feel great about yourself because like we all look great compared to the Nazis right? Like, that's not a hard bar to clear, right? And so if you think about that, but what that ritual does is it absolves you. And I realized that that was what this was being used for. And it does, it is not just about Holocaust memorialization. You see the same thing enacted with um, Jewish heritage sites around the world in places where Jews no longer live. You see the same ritual enacted with um, the way people talk about anti-Semitic attacks now. You see the same thing happen about the way that people talk about Jewish lives that are being lived in the present. Um, and I think I just sort of started seeing this pattern and I just realized like there is something perverse going on and I wanted to address it. And that's what I leaned into with the book. I'm jumping ahead to the Holocaust. I want to go back uh, to the beginning of, of the book, but in respect to the Holocaust, what you say and I mean Holocaust exhibits and heritage sites, you write that dead Jews are only worth discussing if they are part of something bigger, something more. And that that's, you know, rather a high bar. It, unless they're part of a Holocaust, then it's not really uh, as much of an issue. 
yes well right so there's this public ritual where it's like we have to learn about the holocaust so as not to repeat it like well yeah okay let's not repeat the holocaust but what that has come to mean is that like anything short of the holocaust is kind of no big deal um and you see that like there's a point in the book where i talk about this and i say like you know here's a list of things that aren't the holocaust and it's everything from like you know doxing jewish journalists to like you know shooting up a synagogue to like expelling Jewish communities from entire countries and seizing all their assets, which happened in like, I don't know, like uh, 15 um, countries in the Islamic world in the past 50 years. Um, Not a big deal, right? It's not the Holocaust. Like it's like, you know, anything short of murdering 6 million people is kind of fine. I, I am sort of challenging that, that, that issue in this book because to me, this is incredibly perverse. And I think it, 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 there's something that we're doing here with this memory that absolves people. And that's something that is concerning to me. The way you describe it is you say anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's hard to go to a Holocaust museum today without the feeling that something profound has shifted. What exactly do you think is the, is the shift? Okay. So, well, I'm going to speak directly to that aspect of the book. So, um, the the part of the book you're talking about is a piece that I wrote. Um, I actually originally wrote it for the Atlantic magazine. Um, and this was a review I wrote of a Holocaust exhibit that opened in um, in downtown Manhattan uh, before the pandemic. Um, I think it even was still running in part during the pandemic. So it's fairly recent in the last couple of years. Um, and what I realized was that, you know, a lot of the in the 1990s, there were many Holocaust museums and exhibits that opened all around the United States. And these were things that were made by largely by the Jewish community. These were usually created by Jewish philanthropists or not for profit groups. And their goal was really basically to inoculate the American public against anti-Semitism. That was sort of the premise of this. Um, as I put it in the book, there was there's was something kind of hopeful about these projects, right? Because as grim as they were, they had this sort of idea that they were for lack of a better word, effective, right? Like that this was people would come to these museums, learn what the world had done to the Jews, learn where hatred can lead, and then they would stop hating Jews. And so what's interesting to me is that now you have 30 years later, you know, sort of like, you know, levels of anti-Semitic uh, attacks and things like that are much higher now than they were 30 years ago. And so, but what's also the, so, so that's one thing that has shifted. But the other thing that has shifted is this Holocaust memorialization is now coming from a different place. So this exhibit that I wrote about um, in the book actually is created by a, a for-profit European company whose business is blockbuster museum shows. Their um, other most famous exhibit that this company ever made was an exhibit called the Bodies human bodies exhibition. This was very big. I, I don't know if they had it in Washington or where you are, but um, this was a, a, an exhibit about 15 years ago that was in many American cities. It was in cities overseas too, um, where they had human cadavers. Did you see this exhibit? It was like, there, there were like human bodies, physical human cadavers that they had like cross-sectioned and dyed in different colors. It was like to teach people about anatomy. It was later revealed they got the bodies from the Chinese government. I mean, this is like very controversial exhibit. Um, this is the same company, for-profit company, that's making this Auschwitz show in New York. Um, you know, they also have a very popular show about the Titanic. Um, and as I put it in the book, I'm like, of course, this isn't a disaster porn company. It's an education company. Who could argue against education? Well, I mean, I'm here to argue against education. Something has changed here where these people, you know, where now it's like dead Jews are just sort of like used as this like metaphor 
for like the limits of civilization, which do not, and it doesn't, and then again, it's sort of like this, there is this erasure going on. And that to me was shocking that now you have a for-profit European company that is um, basically selling tickets to Auschwitz. And I mean, that sort of, to me, is a very big shift from when this was something that was built by the Jewish community. You saw, you have a chapter in the book about um, frozen Jews. And yeah. it seems in some sense, appropriate to this uh, part of the conversation. So maybe you can talk about it because it's similarly selling Jewish heritage for a profit. Yes. So um, this is the chapter I have frozen Jews. It's about a city uh, called Harbin in China. This city is a South of Siberia, north of North Korea. It's as awesome as it sounds. Um, and what's unusual about this city is that this city was basically built by Russian Jews. Um, in 1896, the Chinese government gave the Russian government a concession to build like a branch line of the Trans-Siberian Railroad deeper into China. Um, the Russians needed to build like an administrative center for this railroad. They needed to build a town. They needed educated Russian-speaking entrepreneurs to buy this t- to build this town for them. And they're like, the problem is who the heck wants to move to Manchuria, which is the traditional name for this region of China. They're like, hello, Jews. Would you like to live without anti-Semitic restrictions, but not have to be a bottom feeder in a New York City sweatshop? Awesome. We have an option for you. You can move to Manchuria. And 20,000 Russian Jews moved to Manchuria and built this city. They built all the infrastructure of the city. Um, And so this is the beginning of the 20th century. Um, You already know this story has to end badly. Um, You know, there are like a series of uh, regimes that come into power that make basically make life more and more impossible for this community until... The last Jewish family in Harbin is evacuated by the Israeli government in 1962. Um, today, there is one Jew in Harbin who's a, a man who's a, originally Israeli. He's he, uh, settled there 20 years ago. He's a, he, as a professor at university there. Um, but so this is a city. I mean, this is a large, I mean, this is like many Chinese cities you have never heard of. It has 16 million people in it. It's bigger than New York. This city with one Jew in it has... Um, now invested $30 million in restoring Jewish heritage sites, um, meaning they're, you know, renovating these, like, synagogues, they've renovated the cemetery, they've, like, rebuilt, all, you know, they put, like, the um, heritage plaques on all these various historic homes. And what's amazing about this, to me, is that they said the quiet part out loud. And what I mean by that is they have they held conferences. One uh, they were one was called the International Forum on Wait for It Economic Cooperation between Harbin and the world's Jews. The world's Jews. I could not make this up. In which the um, the mayor of Harbin gives a speech about how there are so many Jews we admire in history, like J.P. Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller. Um, neither of those people were Jewish, if you were curious. Um, and then talks about how, you know, the money of the world is in the pockets of the Jews. And isn't this a wonderful testament to Jewish wisdom? And we hope that Jews will now come to Harbin and give us their magic Jewish money. So, I mean, this is like not that different from what is going on in many different countries around the world. Um, but like here, it's just, it was just so explicit. And, you know, you, what's amazing is like, I went to Harbin and it's like, it's kind of absurd what they've done there because you go to these Jewish museums and I'll just give one example. And in this Jewish museum, they have like an exhibit where it's like life-size plaster figures who are like posed with furniture. So it's like a life-size plaster guy 
sitting at a desk in front of a typewriter. And then the caption says, you know, real Jewish businessman in Harbin. And then like you walk down the street and there's like plaques on the sides of the building. They're like, this house was built by a Jew, right? I mean, and it's just sort of this absurd, it's just this like kind of crazy absurdity, but it's not that different from what you see a lot of places doing with this kind of Jewish memory. Like these places weren't that excited about the Jews when they actually lived there. In fact, they expelled them and seized all their assets. But now it's like, hooray, Jewish heritage. Who doesn't love Jewish heritage? Well, they love it a lot more when there are no actual Jews there. Chapter one of the book is entitled Everybody's Second Favorite Dead Jew. And it's about Anne Frank. So the first sentence of this first chapter says, people love dead Jews. Living Jews, not so much. So tell us a little bit about the diary of a young girl and Anne Frank and your assessment of how history has treated the Anne Frank story. Um, sure, but it's it's not even history, actually. It's much more contemporary than that. And this is, in fact, the, the incident that led me to write this book, because what happened was I was asked by uh, Smithsonian Magazine in 2018 if I would write a piece for them about Anne Frank. And I got that request, and I just felt this overwhelming sense of dread, because I thought, wow, I really don't want to write an essay about Anne Frank. And, you know, the logical thing would be to, like, turn this assignment down. But, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm not a logical person. I don't make logical choices. And I just thought, you know, like, this is interesting. Why don't I want to write about this? Because I had never really articulated this for myself before. I mentioned earlier, like, I spent 20 years not writing about this topic or avoiding it as best I can. But I thought, you know, why do I feel so uncomfortable with this? Because as a writer, I know that the uncomfortable moments are usually where the story is. And I remembered at that point a news item I had seen about an incident that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. Um, this is, of course, this uh, this museum. This is where, you know, Anne Frank, uh, this teenage Jewish diarist and her family and several other people were hiding from the Nazis. And there's these like tiny secret rooms where they were hiding. The building where these rooms are is now this like blockbuster museum. They have, I don't know, two million visitors a year um, before COVID. And so this was in 2018, the news item I had seen was about a young Jewish man who works at this museum. And the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. And he then appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board deliberates for four months and then relents and lets him wear his yarmulke to work. And I had seen this news story and I had just thought, you know, four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank house to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And I thought, you know, there's something going on here. And I you know, realized like, this is this you know, story that where living Jews are asked to erase themselves in order to like sort of, you know, gain this public respect and so sort of like, you know, present this like feel good story about humanity. And so then what I did was I, I looked and I started reading. I mean, obviously I'd read the diary of Anne Frank before because, you know, that's the thing that everybody reads. And, but I also, now I'm coming to this with a PhD in Yiddish. And in Yiddish literature, there's a lot of literature about the Holocaust and it doesn't really sound like this. And what I realized is that, you know, there's this line from Anne Frank's diary that is like, the most famous line in the diary, it's like plastered on the walls of the museum, it's on the book jacket, which is when she says, you know, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. 
And I feel like the reason this is we this line is so like celebrated is because you know, it's flattering to us, right? It makes us feel forgiven for lapses of our civilization that lead to piles of murdered girls. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, if a murdered girl said this, then, you know, like, oh, look, a murdered Jew has offered us absolution from sin, right? Like, this is a very familiar narrative for a lot of people. But, you know, the problem is, like, the reality is so much simpler. Anne Frank wrote that line about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't because who had she met before at that point in her life i mean she's like you know she's a kid she's living with her family she who are the only other people she's interacting with are these like you know people who are like see you know bringing her family food three weeks after she writes these words she's arrested she gets deported to auschwitz guess what she met people there who weren't good at heart don't you think she would have had something more to tell us so in the book i go into these writings of um, and I don't know how much detail we want to go into here, but, um, you know, she, I, I, I give an, an, a counterexample for like, here's a diary that's a whole lot less popular, is the diary of Zalman Grodowski. This is another very similar story. This is a young Jewish man who's deported to Auschwitz, wrote a diary that was discovered after his death. Very similar story. The difference is Zalman Grodowski is writing his diary in Yiddish and is writing it at Auschwitz where he was part of the Sonderkommando, which were the Jewish prisoners who were forced to escort other Jewish prisoners into the gas chambers and then remove their bodies and burn them. And he's writing about that experience. Uh, he doesn't have any lines in his diary that talk about people being truly good at heart. And I think that's why it's a lot less popular. You write of Anne Frank, um, it is far more gratifying to believe that an innocent dead girl offered us grace than to recognize the obvious, that this is not really a Holocaust book. She wasn't writing about the genocide because it wasn't in her in her presence. Correct. And when she says people are really good at heart, we get to tap ourselves on the back and say, oh, yeah, there was the resistance and, and, and there were the righteous Jews and um, aren't we good at heart? But of course, statistically, uh, that's not what the Holocaust was about. And the number of righteous Jews were few and, and far between. And, oh, um, righteous Gentiles, I think you meant to say. Right, what did I say? Righteous Jews? Right, yes, righteous, righteous Gentiles, yes. Probably both. Righteous well, Gentiles. Both, yes, I was to say, they're, they're, neither of them are, 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 are very common. So, <laughs> But it's an important distinction because you say that dead Jews are only important if they are a symbol of something more, a portend of, a, of a, something broader, in, in society. Yes. So this is another sort of um, flaw, I think, in the way that we talk about this. So um, yes, that line, and it's funny because that, that line that you quote was actually something that I wrote in response to an editor at a mainstream publication responding to me. So um, I, in the piece I wrote about the, the, the Auschwitz exhibit, the Auschwitz exhibit in New York, um, this one by this for-profit European company, there was some point in that piece where my, I, that was originally published in the Atlantic. And there was some point in my piece where the editor flagged it and said, you know, shouldn't you say something here about how, you know, like, uh, oh, I think, oh, I know what it was. In, there's somewhere in that piece where I talk about the, the rabbi of my synagogue on the day that I went to that museum show. The rabbi of my synagogue went to a, um, a meeting of local police for local clergy in the town where my synagogue is. Um, it was him and seven Christian ministers and priests. And he told me how he was just sitting there like in silent, stunned silence while these church officials are arguing about whether or not they should put a lock on a church door. 
And he was just sitting there like stupefied because he's like, do these people not know that like we just did active shooter training with the nursery school staff? He's like, and you're arguing about a lock on a door. And he's like, they just have no idea. And so I had sort of included this this in my piece. And my editor, The Atlantic, who's a lovely person, um, said, you know, he flagged and he said, well, shouldn't you say something here about how like, you know, there are many, you know, houses of worship where people need security. And, you know, there have been attacks on churches and mosques and et cetera. And I, and I actually wrote the, my response to his edit, which is in the book, is, you know, I just want to f- apologize here and point out that, yes, this rabbi and I both know that there are other houses of worship that have required security and have been victims of hate crimes. Yes, this rabbi and I both know that other people have been persecuted too. And this degrading need to recite these middle school obvious facts is in fact part of the problem, which is that Jewish, you know, that that dead Jews are only important if they represent something more. Now this comes to, and I think that this is part of this idea that Jews have to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. We are not interested. And and I, in, Another, there's another very, so I gave that example of the quote from Anne Frank, which is like plastered on walls. I don't talk about this in the book, but another quote that you often see about the Holocaust is this, what is the guy's name? Reinhold Niemöller. Um, he was some like some Lutheran minister or something who he has this quote where he says, you know, first they came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up when, because I wasn't a Jew and then blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, they came for me and nobody was there to speak up or something like this. You know, this idea is basically, well, if they had stopped with the communists and the Jews, then it would have been fine. And obviously that's not what he means, but that's what it's come to mean, because now you have to make this argument um, where, you know, and you often will hear even Jews making this argument where it's like, oh, Jews are the canary in the coal mine. When Jews are attacked, it's like a sign that the decline of the society. Think of what an affront it is to one's own dignity to have to make that argument. What you are basically saying is people should care if Jews are murdered or maimed because it might be an ominous sign that real people might later get attacked, right? You're being forced to erase yourselves, yourself in order to gain public respect. And to me, that's like really disturbing. Like, I don't think that we would, I think that we would recognize the offensiveness of that standard for really anyone else. There isn't this expectation like, you know, that like, that so, oh, if we talk about anti-Semitism, we have to be like, we're against anti-Semitism and racism and all other forms of bigotry, right? Like, why do we need to add all of these things when we're, this is not what we're talking about right now? Like, you know, we don't say that the Black Lives Matter movement has to like list this whole long, you know, with on all their banners, it has to say all lives matter. In fact, we recognize that that is, you know, that that's offensive to say that, right? That's denigrating this movement, right? So, but yet that's sort of what's expected. And, you know, even from educated people, it's sort of like, you know, it has to be about something more because otherwise why would we care? And I think that that's sort of what comes down that that's sort of, to me is sort of the heart of this book is this idea that people love dead Jews because it serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. It, you know, teaches you some big lesson about humanity, but that allows you, that absolves you of having to care at all about actual people. I'd like to, to pivot a little bit and talk about your chapter on fictional dead Jews, because I found this to be a a terrifically educational conversation. You start it by talking about Frank Kermode, the literary critic who 
has this famous book, The Sense of an Ending, where he talks about the desire for consonance between literature and religion and how that plays out in very different ways, whether you're reading in Yiddish or Hebrew versus whether you're reading in English. And you tell the story, and I'd like you to retell it, about the experience you had with some of your readers of your fiction writing to you about what are you doing here? So can you talk us through this? Sure. So, you know, I, I, um, the story is t- I talk about some things that I learned in graduate school about literature. I did my PhD, as I mentioned, I was studying Yiddish and Hebrew literature, but I was, my degrees in comparative literature. So that meant, you know, I was taking all these courses in Yiddish and Hebrew literature, but I also was taking courses that are like in, you know, history of literary criticism, literary theory, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I also was writing novels. And when you write novels, you are, you know, if you're fortunate as I was to have a lot of people read your novels, you get a lot of reader mail. Um, and I highlight in this book one particular message I got from one reader who says something like, you know, dear Miss Horn, I was you know, reading your book, one of my novels that where one of the characters is a pogrom survivor. And she says, I was reading this book and I got to this scene with a horse being beaten and I threw the book across the room because, you know, I think it's really the purpose of writing a book should be to have your readers feel, have your readers laugh and enjoy and be uplifted. And you are not providing the service to mankind that a writer should provide. Sincerely, Denise. And I'm just like, wow. Um, I wrote a letter back to Denise, which I was smart enough not to send, where I'm like, dear Denise, sorry about the horse. It was based on a scene in Crime and Punishment, which is another book you might want to avoid. Right. And I was like, you know, here's a long list of books you might want to avoid, but you might enjoy some Garfield comics. Those have done a great service to mankind. But, you know, so I was sort of like simultaneously in this weird position where I was like writing novels for a popular audience and, you know, interacting with readers who were really like wanted certain things out of my books and then also studying the structures of literature. And what I discovered was that, you know, this like readers like Denise who are like, you know, oh, I threw the book across the room because you didn't give me the happy ending. You know, that's like a little silly, but even sophisticated readers expect there to be some kind of redemptive ending to their work. So when I talk about Frank Kermode, he has this book called, as you mentioned, Sense of an Ending, where he's comparing, he compares this, like he he talks about how um, literature is like religion in that we are seeking this sense of meaning and completion. And he ties that to the idea of a narrative arc where he says that, like, you know, we expect this narrative arc because religion gives us this narrative arc where, like, you know, there's this redemptive ending at the end. And I just read that and I thought, you know, like, not every religion gives you a narrative arc where there's a redemptive ending at the end. Um, You know, Judaism does not have that redemptive ending, or at least not yet. And I thought, you know, this is actually, he's, he's not wrong. Because what you realize is that in sort of, you know, societies where most people are part of this Christian heritage, there's this expectation of storytelling. What do we expect from a story, right? Like think about even just the language we use to talk about what we want out of a story. We want the good guys to be saved, right? If that doesn't happen, then we want, you know, the main character to have an epiphany, right? We want there to be like a moment of grace. Like, you know, these are very, very Christian terms. And I probably wouldn't have noticed any of this except that I was studying Yiddish and Hebrew literature. And I noticed that in Yiddish and Hebrew literature, None of the writers ever give you any of those things. Like nobody ever gets saved. Nobody ever has an epiphany. They never have a moment of grace. Instead, there's like a really different narrative arc in literature in these Jewish languages where it's based much more on like 
resilience and endurance and sort of the, you know, the, what you see is the strength of characters who sort of go through a lot of horrible things, but then still come out the same person on the other end, um, or they evolve in some ways. It's much more about sort of like what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth is much more the subject, but like, there's no expectation of like tying everything up in a bow at the end. And I realized like I was in this position as an American novelist where like right, readers like would get mad at me if I didn't give them like, you know, a nice redemptive ending at the end of the book. And it just became really clear to me like that I was dealing with these expectations that were really actually very deeply on, um, at a level people haven't even articulated were really coming from a different religious tradition. The story you tell about Ellie Wiesel's book, um, it was published in Yiddish and it was and the world was silent mm -hmm. when it was yeah. translated from Yiddish to French and then to ultimately to English, the, the title of the book became night. And it's interesting in respect of what we're talking about, how in, in Jewish storytelling, there's sort of a kind of realism that comes from humility, from the knowledge that one cannot be true to the human experience while pretending to make sense of the world. Um, and maybe you can recount a little bit about the transition from And the World Was Silent, the Yiddish version of Night, and then the French-English version of, of Night, because it's instructive, I think, on the point that you're, you're driving at. Yes, oh, it's exactly instructive on this. So I want to be clear, this is not my research. This is um, a scholar named Naomi Seidman. Seidman. Um, she wrote about this about 25 years ago, about this. Uh, she studied sort of these two versions of this book. And she also studied a lot of correspondence about how it came about. Um, so Seidman talks about how, yes, he, uh, Wiesel originally published this book in Yiddish with the title and the world was silent. And it's not just the title that's different. Um, that book, it tells the same story, of course, of his experiences in these concentration camps, but it's just like, it, it, it's, it, it's driven by this rage at the nations of the world that allowed this disaster you know this this atrocity to happen um you know this it's there's so much in that book that's sort of like really like you know why isn't anyone stopping this right what where are the nations of the world why is nobody care um you know he's addressing this as a political problem what happens then is that he became close with a, a french catholic uh a writer who's he actually this was someone who also won the nobel prize uh, francois Mauriac, and Moriac was working with Wiesel on editing this memoir to and to create a French version of it. So it's a French version. It's not a the the two, they're two different books, um, tell the same story, but it's not. It's more than a translation. And in the French version, what happens? And it's it's a little unclear how much of this is Moriac's editing, how much of this is Wiesel's choices, but obviously Wiesel approved of this. Um, he basically shifts the burden of the book from. Um, a political problem, which is about where were the nations of the world, to a theological problem, like where was God, right? And so, you know, it's sort of like, and what's interesting to me about that, and, and to Seidman writes about this too, is that was a very canny decision, right? Because if he's publishing this book in the 1950s in France, it's like, what reader in France wants to read about how his society failed, right? Like, better to blame God. You know, we can all get behind that. Right? Like, well, you know, no, this is not, I mean, you know, are there theological things to talk about with the Holocaust? Sure. But like, it's much more immediately a, po a political problem, right? And he just erases that. And in the process sort of makes this palatable to a non-Jewish audience, right? They don't have to read about how they're responsible, how their society failed. 
they can just like oh let's ponder the absence of god like we can all get behind that that's much easier to do and i think that that's sort of like the kind of book that becomes popular um zalman grudowski who's writing about you know this you know his experience in hauling bodies out of the gas chamber he's not writing about where was god he knows why this happened it's not a big mystery Right? Like, I mean, and this is what I say, you know, this whole idea that this, the Holocaust is this like mysterious event from outside of history. It's like, no, people will do absolutely anything to blame their problems on other people. That's it. This is true of Fiddler on the Roof as well, right? The Oh, yes. Yes. In terms of, you mean in terms of making it palatable to a non-Jewish audience or a broader audience? Right. Tell us the Yiddish version of Fiddler yes. on the Roof. Yes. Well, so, yeah. So the Broadway musical Fiddler on the Roof is based on... Um, a book by Shalom Aleichem, the Yiddish writer Shalom Aleichem, which is a cycle of stories um, that are called Tevi the Dairyman, so the familiar character. Um, but, you know, the Broadway version, it left out a lot. So just a few examples of what was left out of the Broadway version. One uh, example is one of Tevi's daughters kills herself. Yeah, that wasn't going to be fun on Broadway. Um, you know, a lot of other characters die. Um, Golda dies. Oh, Muttle drops dead. You know, like, oh, hooray, she married her sweetheart, Muttle Kamsoil. I think they have four children, and then he suddenly drops dead, and she's left a widow with all these little kids. Um, oh, one daughter, like, fulfills his dream, marries a rich man, and ends up in an emotionally abusive marriage. And then that guy loses his entire fortune in the Russo-Japanese War, and they end up being um, basically slaves in a sweatshop in New York. It's a really dark book. Um, oh, another really big difference is Chava's non-Jewish husband abandons her and she returns to her family at the end of the book. So there's a lot of like stuff that wouldn't fly on Broadway. But what's interesting about that book is that like the power in the book, in the Yiddish version, is that Tevya never changes. And that book was written over 25 years. It's like it, it's, it, it's, it was published in real time. You, Tevya ages 20 years over the course of the book. At the beginning of the book, he has all these little kids at home who are all starving. And the, the beginning is how he became a milkman and how he started that business. Um, and then at the very end, it's like his, he's a widower with all of his children have moved out. Um, and you sort of see, but what's amazing about that book is he suffers through all these things over the course of 20 years, but he never changes. He's the same person and just, you know, enduring all of these things. And the last line of that book, which would never fly on Broadway, is, um, you know, the book is structured as monologues. It's Tevi the Dairyman telling his stories to the author Sholem Aleichem. The very last line of that book is, Sholem Aleichem, please go tell all of our Jews everywhere that our old God still lives. And it's just sort of this story. It's like this whole book is like a masterclass in resilience through all of these, you know, horrific things that, that life throws at him. And, and that's the essence of uh, Jewish literature written in Hebrew and, and Yiddish. And from that, you go on to talk a bit more. I'm sorry to stay focused on, on uh, this part of the book, because there are a lot of other things, but this really interested me a lot, which is your conversation about Holocaust novels. And if you can flesh that out for us, that would be wonderful. Sure. So, you know, there's there's been this like proliferation in recent years of Holocaust fiction. Um, and this is another place where I think you've seen a shift. So I talked earlier about how the Holocaust museums that were built like 30 years ago were built like by the Jewish community, largely by Jewish nonprofit groups and things like that. It was there's sort of this educational process. 
And I think that was true also like, you know, Holocaust literature that was written, you know, 30 years ago or more was mostly written by Jewish authors, often either people who themselves were survivors or who had survivors in their families. Now you have this like proliferation of Holocaust fiction, a lot of which is written by non-Jewish writers. You know, and I, again, I'm not claiming that you, you know, you need to be Jewish to write about these things, but these stories are, tend to be what like my reader Denise would love. They were like uplifting, right? Like they're about Christian rescuers, right? Who come in and save these hapless Jews and they've thus inspired us all, right? You know, they're about these like, you know, inspiring stories about like the wonders of humanity coming through. And the problem with these stories is that like, First of all, they're statistically insignificant, right? The number of Christian rescuers, unfortunately, was statistically insignificant. Quite frankly, the number of Holocaust survivors was statistically insignificant, right? I mean, the, the story of the of Holocaust survival is extremely atypical and, in a sense, meaningless in terms of how to understand this event. Um, so that's the first aspect of it, which is extremely misleading for an American public or for a, or a broader public. I mean, these books are published all over the world. Um, but then the other thing is sort of, it just becomes this sort of like cheap sentimentalization because these stories, like if, if the story of the Holocaust is uplifting, it's not a story about the Holocaust, right? It's a story that's told to make you feel good about yourself. And what I do in the book is I compare it with like, well, what would a novel about the Holocaust look like in a Jewish language? And I introduce my readers to um, this like monumental work by the Yiddish writer Chava Rosenfarb called um, The Tree of Life. And it is available in English translation. Um, this is a novel. It's about the, um, it's about the Lodge ghetto. It's, and it's about, um, it's, it, you know, she did survive the Lodge ghetto herself. She published this book, I think in the 1970s. Um, so it is something that's written, you know, many years later, but it is a novel. It is not, it's not just her life. It is about, there are 10 main characters in this book. And they are from all walks of life. There's uh, wealthy people, poor people, um, you know, religious people, secular people. There's like communists, socialists, Zionists, right? And you see all these different characters and how they interact with each other. And it, they're all adults, first of all, right? Like this isn't about like some child who is hidden and he's so sweet, right? These are all adults who are making adult choices. They, the whole first volume of the book takes place before they go into the ghetto. So you see who these people are before sadists take over their lives, Sadists then take over their lives and they're the same people as they were before, just in horrific circumstances. And you see them making choices and moving through their lives under these horrific circumstances. And like, you know, people start dying and people start getting tortured to death and people start being murdered. And like, you know, characters you care about start falling like dominoes. I mean, one major character ends up castrated, right? I mean, and there's like, there's nothing holding back here. I mean, and you're reading this and it's like, it's just terrible. I mean, it's very, very hard to read. Um, it doesn't end with an inspirational quote. There is nothing about the wonders of humanity in this book, but it is a miraculous book. It enlarges your life as a reader. Suddenly your life as a reader comes to contain these people's lives and you understand them as adults who are part of a flourishing civilization that was destroyed. And that's what is missing from all of these sort of like light Holocaust fiction that we have now that gets turned into Netflix movies. It's like, yay, look, there's somebody inspiring who's like, you know, makes us all feel great about ourselves and also doesn't require us to learn anything about Jewish civilization. You write about these Holocaust novels, and I said, in addition to their wonderful non-Jewish characters, these books are invariably populated by the sort of relatable dead Jews who readers can really get behind, the mostly non-religious, 
mostly non-Yiddish speaking ones, whom noble people try to save and whose deaths therefore teach us something beautiful about our shared universal humanity, replete with epiphanies and moments of grace. I mean, and then I think my next line is the fact that this, um, the, the fact that this was a, the experience of approximately no people who went through the Holocaust is both, um, is, I, I think I said, uh, you know, insignificant and irrelevant. Right. Inconvenient, inconvenient and irrelevant. Yes. Um, well, because, you know, what is elided, and then, you know, I talked about how these, you know, these sort of public memorializations require Jews to erase themselves, and they require an erasure of Jewish culture. I used to say this to people at my public talks when I would write, when I would speak about my novels. I often would ask my readers, how many people here can name three concentration camps? And that's usually something that a lot of readers can do. I would then ask those same readers, how many people here can name three Yiddish writers? 85% of the people who were murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. This is a famously literary culture. Why do we care so much about how these people died if we don't care at all about how they lived? Like the civilization that was destroyed in the Holocaust was Ashkenazi Yiddish speaking civilization in all of its manifestations. This was, a, you know, this was millions of people who spoke a certain language, right? Who not, and who, not, and who participated in a culture, whether from a religious angle or from a political angle or from a cultural angle. I mean, this was like, you know, a whole world that was destroyed and that is the world we do not care about at all, because if you notice all of those like popular Holocaust novels, it's always, it, it isn't about people living in that world. And this is something actually I talk about. I have, in addition to this book, I also have a podcast, um, which is called Adventures with Dead Jews, because of course the world's love for dead Jews is far too vast to fit in one book. Um, and so I've, in, you know, in my podcast, I do have one episode where I talk about the Holocaust Museum in Washington and their, um, their children's exhibit which is an exhibit called Daniel's Story, which is basically about a German-speaking kid in Frankfurt who, you know, you go, and you walk through his house, right? It's like you see he's got his soccer trophies and then there's like his dad's war medals and then, you know, whatever, then the next room you go to the ghetto or whatever, you follow this kid through his life. Um, but what's amazing to me now, looking back at it, is like, why do we have this kid's soccer trophies on the shelf? Why don't we have his copies of the Talmud? Or why don't we have his uniform from his socialist scouting organization or his songbooks from his Zionist youth group, right? Why do we have dad's war medals from the German army? Why don't we have dad's tefillin, right? Like ritual objects dad uses when he prays or, or why don't we have dad's tickets to the Yiddish theater, right? Like this is this, like, that's what was destroyed in this, in this, you know, in this genocide, right? That's the culture that was destroyed. But in a sense, like, we're destroying it, too, because we don't want, you know, we want to, we're working so hard on this idea that, like, Jews, we should care about Jews because they're just like everyone else, right? And I think that's the real flaw in the premise of diversity that we have in this country, where we have taught people, we have had, like, a whole generation of anti-bigotry education, where the whole premise is, you shouldn't hate these people in this whatever group it is, because they're just like everyone else, but that's actually an erasure, right? Because what you're basically saying is like, well, if they aren't just like everyone else, then it's totally fine to hate them. It's interesting. You have a section in the book, which is, which I call the heart of anti-Semitism. And you write that, and this sort of takes us to current times as well. You write that the Bible's famous call for freedom, let my people go, 
is nearly always followed by a second phrase, so they may serve me. And you say the only purpose of freedom, therefore, is to enable people to voluntarily accept divine laws, laws that welcome strangers, loving one's neighbors, accepting responsibility for creating civic society with mutual obligation. And the problem that we have now is that anti-Jewish theories that motivate anti-Semitic violence has its at its core a real fear of freedom that we just articulated. Maybe you can talk about this real fear of freedom theory that you articulate in, in the book. Yes. Well, so, right. So to, to go back to that biblical concept, right, is that, you know, f- the basic idea is that, you know, the, you, the biblical premise is that you're accepting divine law out of your own free will, right? It is not meaningful for God to give people commandments if they aren't choose if they don't have the ability to choose to follow them right and these commandments are quite demanding right um you know in judaism you have it's not 10 commandments it's 613 commandments um and they're very elaborate rules of how to set up a civic society there's a lot of other stuff in there too about you know killing livestock and whatever but which is no not relevant today um but it's it is like the idea is that like freedom requires hard work right you do have to build a society um, and you have to, you know, it requires you to educate children. It requires you to like settle differences among people, right? It requires you to sort of like learn how to live with others in a sense of, as I said, mutual obligation. So when I say that sort of, you know, the core of anti-Semitism is a fear of freedom, this is what I mean by that. In every place where Jews have ever lived, they've represented the possibility of freedom. What I mean by that is you have these societies where the the goal of the society is conformity, right? Like the we're the reason we're making there we're building our society is that so everyone conforms to one way of life. There are many societies that where that has been the premise, and in those kinds of societies, the presence of Jewish communities in those societies is sort of revealed that in fact you don't have to believe what your neighbors believe because look here's these people over here who don't believe this and they're here like they exist they're not being shot down by no they're not being struck by lightning so it's like well there are these people here who are living in a different way than you and to me that's what's sort of really interesting about judaism and jewish history is that judaism is like this counterculture that runs through the entire history of the west it is the foundation of western civilization um, because of its contribution in, to Christianity and Islam. But it's also an ongoing challenge to Western civilization because the Jewish community has never conformed to the larger cultures in, uh, among which it has lived and has always sort of very adamantly refused to conform. And so to me, that's sort of the, the ultimate challenge to diversity and not just diversity, but freedom of conscience. Like, what does it mean to say that I am free to believe what I want to believe and you, my neighbor, do not have to believe what I believe? You don't have to agree with me. We can build a society where we both live, where we have different beliefs. Um, this is supposed to be the promise of America, right? This is one of the reasons the Jewish communities have flourished in this country is because America is similar to the, it's in a sense similar to Jewish civilization in that it's a society that's based on a set of laws, right? What we have in common is that we're sharing these laws. And to me, that's sort of the premise of freedom is that you can't have freedom without responsibility, right? You have to, you, you, freedom is not about, a, you know, not having obligations. It's about choosing your obligations. And that's the only way that we can live together. And I think it's sort of, 
extremely poignant now when we live in a, our, as our society is sort of becoming more siloed. And we now sort of have this culture where there's this urge to, you know, not associate with people who don't agree with you, right? Like not tolerate people who don't agree with you. And to me, that's a very, uh, a very dangerous and disturbing pattern. And I think that you see that in, you know, the, the presence of sort of Jewish, Jewish culture in throughout Western culture has been sort of this sign of what does it mean to live in a society that tolerates difference? And so that's what I mean by freedom is, um, you know, that actually, you know, your neighbors don't have to believe the same thing that you believe. You write that the existence of Jews in any society is a reminder that freedom is possible, but only with responsibility. Freedom without responsibility is no freedom at all. Yes. So, yes. So this is, you know, that there's, and as I said in the Bible, that's, it always says, let my people go so they may serve me. Um, and this is sort of, you know, so that there's this premise that we have to set up a society that has a set of laws and that it requires work, right? Like it's actually really difficult to set up a civic society. It requires a lot of things that are really difficult, like educating children. Like that's really hard. It requires like, you know, building a set, you know, it requires welcoming strangers. Like that's hard. Um, people are suspicious of strangers, right? Like, what do you do about welcoming? You know, there's many, many laws throughout the Bible about how do you treat a stranger? Um, you know, this is sort of, you know, and these laws become very important in Jewish life as well. So, you know, this, you know, obviously this is the sort of the core of Jewish life is this idea of like, how, what are the elaborate laws that we're going to set up to make a civic society possible? Um, and how are we all going to undertake those obligations? That is really the, that is the premise of Judaism. And in a lot of ways, those premises of Judaism are what made, you know, Christianity and Islam possible, right? I mean, that's sort of like, you know, this idea of a society that's bound by, you know, by this set of, you know, set of agreed, you know, what we call in Judaism, a covenant is in a sense, the premise of many of these other great monotheistic religions too, um, and so what I think is really interesting about it is that, you know, you don't have to be a religious person to see the power of this idea that freedom is meaningless without obligation. You end the last sentence of the introduction by saying, this book explores the many strange and sickening ways in which the world's affection for dead Jews shapes the present moment. I hope you will find it as disturbing as I do. And it was not a disturbing book. I mean, it was disturbing, but it was a, an important book. And I don't want to leave our listening audience on a note that is so down that we're experiencing a resurgence in anti-Semitism in America, which we are with the synagogue in Pittsburgh and in San Diego and marches in Charlottesville. So if I'd like, I'd like to end this, if you would, by you're talking a little bit about the Dafyomi undertaking that you're going through, because I think that's a very nice way to end. Sure. So, you know, this was a point at the, it was just before the pandemic. Um, I was, um, I, that was, there was a point just, I'm sorry, I'll start over. There was a point just before the pandemic when there was sort of like a spate of attacks against the, um, Hasidic communities in New York and New Jersey. Um, and I was, you know, there was, uh, there was a shooting at a kosher grocery store that's actually, I live in New Jersey, it was quite close to my home. 
Um, there was uh, also like a machete attack at a at a Hanukkah party in um, a Hasidic community in Muncie, New York, upstate New York. Um, and, you know, there were many, many other sort of smaller attacks. These were attacks on the Hasidic, Hasidic Jewish community. And what I found amazing was sort of how these attacks were often justified in the press. Um, when you would read news reports about these attacks, they would talk about how, oh, this is about gentrification or something like that. And, you know, or, oh, this was about, you know, well, these, you know, oh, look, the, there was this heated school board battle or zoning battle in these communities. Like, no, it's like these people were, you know, this was deranged anti-Semitic violence and why are we making excuses for it? So that this was all very upsetting to me. Um, it was upsetting to the larger Jewish community as well, because I think people recognize like, you know, when people attack the Hasidic community, it's not because they disagree with Hasidic beliefs and practices. It's because these people are visible. That's why. So, um, you know, there was just before the pandemic, there was sort of this, uh, the Jewish community in New York uh, organized an anti-hate march. Um, that, uh, there are about 25,000 people who went to that. And which is, you know, I guess very encouraging, but also very depressing that it has to happen. But it was just, I think, a couple of days after that, that uh, gathering, that there was a much larger uh, Jewish gathering in the area where I live, um, in the Meadowlands, uh, in the stadium in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, there was a gathering of 90,000 people for what's a ceremony called Siyum Hashas. This is the conclusion of the Talmud. So what this means is there's a program called Daf Yomi in the Jewish world, which means it literally means a page a day. And this is a program where you study one page of the Babylonian Talmud every day until you complete it in a very reasonable seven and a half years. Um, so this is, um, you know, which, you know, probably sounds to many people like a big commitment. But, um, you know, when you think about how actually like traditional Jewish study is like often like considered to be like an all time, you know, it's supposed to be like a, a full-time affair. Like it's actually, you know, this, this was like Judaism light that you're only doing like a page a day. Um, so that tells you how much this community cares about scholarship. Um, I had never done this before. Um, I had studied the Talmud before very briefly in, in small excerpts and things like that, but had never sort of seriously undertaken it. And I just thought like, you know, there's these two gatherings here. One is like this anti-hate march, which is like, to, you know, I guess was, you know, nice that it happened, but like super depressing that it had to. And then there was this other gathering that was sort of like just this process of Jewish life just continuing. And we're going to do another seven years. And what do you do after the seven years ends? You start the whole book all over again. And I thought, which one, which one of these things would I rather attend? And so that day I started studying the Talmud. Um, and, you know, I, as I sort of moved into this, it's a very, very weird book. Um, it's kind of not even a book. It's almost more like a, like a social media thread or something, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, hundreds of rabbis just like arguing with each other, you know, for pages and pages and never coming to any conclusions or very rarely coming to any conclusions. Um, but what I saw is that these were people who, they were living in, in the aftermath of tragedy. Um, the Talmud is composed over several centuries, but it's composed in the wake of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the loss of Jewish sovereignty in Israel. So basically the Romans destroy the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, they exile the people. Um, and normally this would be for most cultures in the ancient world, like that would be the end. Like the Romans did that to other populations too. And those cultures dissolved and died out. And that's not what happens in the case of the Jews, because these rabbis sort of were like, okay, this whole center of our world was destroyed. Now what? 
And the now what is the 2,700 pages of the Talmud that they write over the course of like three centuries and or four, or I think it's even more four or five centuries. And it's like, what do we do now when the basis of your life is removed? What do you do instead? Right. How do you, you know, how do you incorporate a tragedy into your life? You know, in America, we like to talk about moving on from tragedy, but perhaps it's more um, accurate to describe it as moving through. Right. What happens is this tragedy of the loss of sovereignty and the loss of the temple and the loss of Jerusalem becomes something that becomes incorporated into a new kind of practice. And basically, Judaism becomes this virtual reality system um, where they the rabbis sort of create something new out of something old. And it's sort of this amazing transformation. And you see it in process in the Talmud. Right. The whole the Talmud, you sort of see like how they're deciding, like, how is this going to work now that we no longer have this centralized place of worship? what does worship look like? Let's talk about this, right? Like now that we no longer have, you know, these, this court, you know, because there also was a Jewish high court. It was like a Supreme court, um, the Sanhedrin. They're like, now that we no longer have the Sanhedrin, how are we going to adjudicate these kinds of, you know, even just interpersonal, interpersonal legal disputes? What are we going to do about this? And they solve all these problems in the sense they don't solve them, but they, they embark on this project of solving these problems. And it was sort of just like beautiful to see. Um, and I had never appreciated it before. But then I sort of saw like the ability these people have to enter into this, as I called it, this masterclass in resilience. And that was what I found so enchanting about it. And I will say that some readers get to the end of my book and they find this and they're like, well, this isn't a solution to anti-Semitism. And I'm like, no, it's not. I am not pretending that this is a solution to the problems I describe in this book. It is not. But it is a kind of refuge. It is a kind of refuge from a world that is trying to define is trying to define this civilization from the outside in to sort of realize that there's other ways to define it from the inside out. And so that was sort of what I, that's why I ended the book in that way. I don't tie the book up in a bow. I do leave it to the reader to here. I've served you this enormous problem. Now that you have seen it, what will you do? Um, so no, I'm not satisfying those readers. They can go throw the book against the wall. If they were looking for a happy ending, a book called people love dead Jews was not the place to look. Um, but I am giving them, uh, some awareness that this, that we've been here before this problem has been dealt with before. And, um, the conversation about the problem is, is a very important step toward, uh, toward healing. The book is entitled people love dead Jews reports from a haunted present. I don't find the book to be disturbing. I find it to be uplifting um, in an intellectually challenging way. And I thank you very much for writing it and challenging us to think about these very important topics. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. 
serving collectors since 1945. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.